0: And it was the fear of death that made him pray to the saints and to Mary Uh, at another occasion when he had been injured by some kind of a farm implement, and he thought he was going to bleed to death. And it is that spirit of fear that really sums up the religion of Martin Luther at that time. I want to give you a little quote here from an historian. It's just about six or seven lines, and it tells us that Luther wanted peace with God. He yearned and craved for it. He had realized that the world could not grant his heart's desire, and he hoped to find it in the cloister. He certainly did his utmost to obtain it, listening to Let the Bible Speak. This is Pastor Ian Golliher, and we come today to another Luther lesson. Here, after he stood with his 95 theses, protested against Tetzel, the seller of indulgences that was pardon for money, Luther stood against the Church of Rome, and his biographer here says, a more formidable resistance than that made by Tetzel, was already opposed to Luther. Rome had answered, a reply had gone forth from the walls of the sacred palace. It was not Leo X who had condescended to speak of theology. 'Tis a mere monkey squabble, he said one day. The best way is not to meddle with it, and at another time he observed It is a drunken German that has written these theses. When the fumes have passed off he will talk very differently. A Roman Dominican, Sylvester Mazzolini of Priero, master of the sacred palace, filled the office of censor, and it was in this capacity that he first became acquainted with the theses of the Saxon monk. A Catholic censor and Luther's theses, what a contrast! Freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry, freedom of belief come into collision with the city of Rome, with that power which claims to hold in its hands the monopoly of intelligence, and to open and shut at pleasure the mouth of Christendom. The struggle of Christian liberty, which engenders children of God, with pontifical despotism, which produces slaves of Rome, is typified, as it were, in the first days of the Reformation in the encounter of Luther and Priero, The Roman censor, prior general of the Dominicans, empowered to decide on what Christendom should profess or conceal, and on what it ought to know or be ignorant of, hastened to reply. He published a writing which he dedicated to Leo X. In it he spoke contemptuously of the German monk and declared with assurance that he should like to know whether this Martin had an iron nose or a brazen head, which cannot be broken. And then, under the form of a dialogue, he attacked Luther's theses, employing by turns ridicule, insult, and menaces. This combat between the Augustinian of Wittenberg and the Dominican of Rome was waged on the very question that is the principle of the Reformation. Namely, what is the sole infallible authority for Christians? Here is the system of the church as set forth by its most independent organs. And that is the real battle of the Reformation. Did the authority for faith and practice lie in popes and cardinals or the decrees and councils of the church as an institution or did the final authority of truth rest in the bible the scriptures given by the holy ghost to the writer and thereby to the apostles that finished the canon of scripture that was the, the ground of the battle and it's still the battle today what saith the Bible, the word of God. As the prophet Isaiah said, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. The Christian ought to measure everything according to the light and the standard of the Bible. Without doing so, we walk in darkness, and unless we give our hearts and minds to the truth of God in the scriptures of truth, the Bible, we walk in error. And that is the ground upon which you have Bible Protestant Reformation truth versus the medieval Roman Catholic system. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church today still contends that it Has the right to call authority by the magisterium, by the Council of Trent, and other decrees of popes, that they are the light upon the Bible. But we take the stand that the Church is not founded, uh, the Bible is not founded on the Church, the Church is founded on the Bible. And so, as Luther said, here I stand, I can do. None other. You've been listening to the reformation choir this is ian goliher we're moving now to the pulpit ministry of our church to the psalm 32 in the great doctrine of justification by faith alone may the lord open your heart draw you to receive god's word today that you might know the joy of sins forgiven. Well, we're turning back to Psalm 32, Psalm 32, and the opening verse tells us, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Tomorrow evening will be the 499th year anniversary from the date when Martin Luther took that set of statements, which are now famously called the 95 Theses, and nailed them to the church door at Wittenberg. At that time, Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. He had before assigned himself to that very life because, well, The reasons that historians give was that he was caught in a thunderstorm, and in the midst of a spirit of superstitious fear, he made a vow that if God would preserve his life, he would serve him in the monastery. And so that vow led him out of a spirit of fear to the door of an Augustinian monastery where he became a monk. And it was the fear of death that made him pray to the saints and to Mary at another occasion when he had been injured by some kind of a farm implement, and he thought he was going to bleed to death. And it is that spirit of fear that really sums up the religion of Martin Luther at that time. I want to give you a little quote here from an historian. It's just about six or seven lines, and it tells us that Luther wanted peace with God. He yearned and craved for it. He had realized that the world could not grant his heart's desire, and he hoped to find it in the cloister. He certainly did his utmost to obtain it. He obeyed the monastic rules scrupulously performed the most menial services and went about begging on behalf of the monastery. He was perhaps the most sincere conscientious monk that ever tried, whoever tried in genuine earnestness to merit salvation by human effort. He even became proud of his humility. A proud saint, he declared later, described his condition at this time. Now, while he was in that struggle and yearning for peace with God, he cried out to what we would call his superior or leader, and he said, my sins, my sins, my sins. That superior was a man called Stoupitz and he seemed to have something of the light of the gospel about him because he pointed Martin Luther to the crucified Lord Jesus. Now, at that time, in Luther's mind, he only thought of Christ as a judge, one who was out to clamp down on any that should ever sin. But on that occasion, he was pointed to consider the sympathetic saving, suffering Savior. I thought this very fitting because we come to remember the Lord's table here today, and we as Christians are commanded to dwell upon the sufferings and the sympathy of the Lord Jesus in his very death. Through that, the light of the gospel shone into Luther's heart. He eventually came to the book of Romans and learned what it is to enjoy righteousness or to be right with God by faith, not by works. And in Romans 4, 5, and I want you to look up this text because it's so vital. I want you to take your Bible and look at this gospel statement that became as a ray of hope shining into the heart of this struggling man who so desperately wanted peace with God. And he read these words, Romans 4, verse 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That gospel statement, that gospel truth, caught the heart of Martin Luther. He learned that salvation is not by works, it's not by personal suffering, it's not by his own performance, but that the just shall live by faith. And so you can begin to see that there had to be a reformation within the heart of Martin Luther before there could be a reformation in Germany, which he would spearhead later. There had to be that gospel light shining into his own soul, bringing peace, bringing an understanding. God doesn't want me to go through a life of earthly suffering that I might one day gain heaven, but God sent his Son to suffer for me, that by me looking away from self— looking unto Jesus only, I am saved by faith alone. And that became the liberating doctrine, not only which saved Martin Luther himself, but which he became the preacher par excellence in Germany. So I want to preach to you today a little more of this liberating doctrine, that we are not justified by our works but that we are justified by our faith. And I want to do so today from the Psalm 32, which we read together already this morning. The Psalm 32 is really filled with this doctrine of justification by faith. Now, you might say it's the Old Testament, but you must remember justification is not just Pauline. It's not just the doctrine of Paul. It's not just the doctrine of the Lord Jesus, it's the doctrine of the whole Bible. It really is the one way that a sinner can be right with God from Genesis to Revelation. And it is revealed, of course, in the life of Abraham. He is the outstanding example of a man justified by faith, but also David. And in this Psalm 32, you have the, really the thoughts, the meditations of david as he comes from the guilt, the complaint, the terror of his own sin into the blessedness of being justified by faith. And in this, we're going to look at the standard of justification, the need for it, the provision of justification, the personal application of it, and then the great blessings of justification. So let this psalm, Lead us into this doctrine of justification today. Now, the standard, you'll notice in verse 1, the standard is set out Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. What is the standard? Total forgiveness. Whose sin is forgiven. Whose sin, not sins, but sin in the aggregate, sin in its totality is covered. And such is the demand of God's holiness, because all sin has to go. All sin has to be pardoned, or we're not pardoned at all. If sin is not pardoned, then it must be punished. That's the only alternative. And so, the standard of righteousness, the standard of justification, has to be total, absolute, forgiveness. Now, this is based on the very character of God, because he is infinitely holy, and he is just. He's upright. He cannot flex the law. He cannot bend the rules. You are either right with God, or you are under his condemnation. God cannot be an unjust judge. He cannot merely pass over sin here, there, arbitrarily, the law cannot be bent even at God's will. And even one sin is a great offense to a holy God, because he cannot look upon it. Now, we're told that even the angels cannot look upon sin. It horrifies them. It terrifies them. And if angels cannot look upon sin, saints in heaven cannot look upon sin. It only follows that a holy God cannot abide. He cannot tolerate. He cannot look upon sin, because sin is an offense to the very character of God. Now, I want to talk a little about this offending God, because that seems a strange concept to a lot of people, People can seem to grasp the legality. You break the law, well, that's a legal offense. That's a breach of truth or a breach of the command of God. But what is this about offending the heart of God? How does sin do this? Well, you remember the Lord Jesus said that if ye love me, keep my commandments. So this is not just a matter of the law, it is a matter of love. Do we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Sin is a statement of rejecting, rebelling, turning away from the character of God and His love to us. Now, one way of understanding in this is that in the Bible, sin is called spiritual adultery, where people turn to idols— or turn to worship other things, or they neglect God's law and turn to their own ways, it is called spiritual adultery. Now, adultery is not just the breaking of a law or an agreement. Adultery is disloyalty and betrayal of love. Can you imagine a husband coming home and finding his wife in the arms of another man. Can you understand that not only does he announce, you have broken your vows, but you break my heart? And to watch and to look on at the affection that his wife gives to another is a tremendous cause of anger, upset in his own heart and soul, to the very point— where it is a horrible, horrible offense. And when God looks upon our sin, it's not just we break a rule. It is that we reject his goodness, his love, his favor. And that goodness of God then is turned to wrath, anger, because he is offended at the sin that we committed. Therefore, sin needs to be covered over. This now becomes the standard. Forever going to be right with God, forever going to have God's righteousness, pronouncement that we're right with Him, this sin that we all have committed, this offense that we have caused, must now be put away out of God's sight so that he doesn't even see it. And here in Psalm 32, we have this emphasis made, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Uh, That's the Hebrew word for atonement, by the way, covering over. When the blood was applied to the mercy seat upon the ark. It was sprinkled upon that mercy seat. That was called atonement because the blood covered. Now, remember, in sprinkling the blood, it doesn't mean just little drops. It means a copious pouring out of the blood that would have flowed right over that table of the mercy seat, the ark, and right down its side, it covered the table it covered the law, it covered everything out of sight of those cherubim that were looking down upon that mercy seat. And so the blood was the covering. It was the atonement that brought peace for whom the blood uh, interceded and spoke. And so tonight, the standard of God's righteousness or justification is that every sin has to be covered. And that's the only basis on which God can pronounce or declare a man righteous or just if his sin is completely covered. And so we say as the hymn, every sin has to go neath the cleansing flow. That brings us now to the need of justification. And as you go down this psalm, you will see that it begins with blessed, blessed. Uh, And it is a great thing, a great thing to know that your sins are forgiven. And it's a great thing because verse 3 says, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. And there's the torment of soul of the person who feels guilt and feels the shame, who feels the weight of sin. And as you read down, he says, verse 4, for day and night thy hand was heavy upon me, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. That's the expression of a tormented soul. And it's just like Martin Luther in the monastery, where in that cell he fasted himself almost to death, where he went through nights upon nights without sleep, where he rejected food and, and, and denied his body the essentials of life in an attempt to get rid of this torment, this weight of sin. You remember how he, he talked to his superior, my sin, my sin, my sin. He felt the torture and the torment of that. The torment of a guilty conscience is a horrible and a desperate thing. I think it will make up much of hell. Hell will be torment of conscience. There will be no relief, no release from the guilt of sin and the plague that it works within the heart. The only relief is what David found here in verse 5 is to confess your sin. He says, I acknowledged my sin. That's like a criminal giving himself up at the police station. That's like him going in, and he says, I can't live with myself anymore. I can't hide this anymore. I'm going to just acknowledge. I'm just going to go in and put it all on the table and tell to the authorities, I'm the man, I'm the criminal, book me for the crime. And there is within the release of the, the sense of torment and guilt and the hiding of shame. And not only did David acknowledge it, but we're told here in verse 5, I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And praise God, look at the answer. And thou forgivest mine iniquity. There is the pardoning mercy of God at work in David's life. That was the great need that he had. Now, Psalm 32, we're not told when it was written, for what occasion, but we know of some glaring great sins in David's life. And in this occasion, he couldn't live with it. There was such a deep-seated need in his heart. And that is the case of many. That is the case of multitudes today. Might be even true of you today. You are carrying a tremendous burden. And within you, you are crying, my sin, my sin, my sin. What shall I do? The answer is confess it. Here is the need for justification. You need to be pardoned. You need to hear those words, the Lord forgave my sin. You are listening to Let the Bible Speak, the radio broadcast of the Free Presbyterian Church in Canada. This is Pastor Ian Golliher. If you missed part of today's program or would like to hear it again, you can find it archived by program date on our website. Just go to www.ltbs.ca, CA for Canada. There you can read my blog, find my Bible study notes, audio and video sermons, as well as helpful articles. Or you can go to our podcast on iTunes. We're on the air Sundays at 9.30 a.m. for our full church broadcast and Monday to Friday, 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. on this station to bring you the gospel from our Free Presbyterian Church here in Cloverdale. We also invite you to our church services on Sundays, 10.30 and 6 p.m. Through our website, you can listen and view our, to our online services at 10.30 and 6 p.m. Make it your Sunday worship. Click on the Live Now button on the home page of our website. Or if you would like to talk with me one-on-one as a pastor, please give me a call. The phone number is 604-897-2040. The mailing address is 187 187- 9058 Avenue, Surrey, BC V3S 1M6. We're located just 2 blocks north of Number 10 Highway on 188 Street. Our website again is ltbs.ca. You can join us Monday to Friday, 5am-5pm 5 5 here on the station as we let the Bible speak.